Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talk's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact regarding last week's programme. We were looking at International Women's Day and how to deal with cases of domestic abuse and violence and also femicide. You can still listen back to our podcast on Newstalk.com or on iTunes. And as always, you can get in contact with us today by emailing Between the Lines at Newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, we'll be discussing discussing gaming in Ireland. We'll be asking whether gaming's an actual addiction or just a passionate hobby. We'll be looking at some tips and advice for people who are concerned. To discuss today, we're joined in studio by our panel, Professor Colin O'Gara, who's the Head of Addiction Services at St John of God's Hospital, and also the clinical psychologist and president-elect of the Psychological Society of Ireland, Mark Smith. You're both very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank um, you. We frequently talk and we hear of of gambling and alcohol addiction and various different types of addictions and there's lots of advice and tips for people out there on that. But one area that we've been hearing more and more about um, anecdotally from people across various different programmes here on News Talk is gaming and gaming addictions. So I I assume, you know, that's kind of people sitting down large parts of their day playing, engaging with various different kinds of of computer games. Can I just maybe start, first of all, um, with yourself, Mark Smith, is gaming an addiction? I suppose it depends on who you ask. Um, despite its inclusion in the World Health Organization newest manual, the ICD-11, um, there isn't actually widespread consensus that it should be included in that manual. Um, there are a lot of concerns that the evidence base for its inclusion wasn't there and its inclusion was premature. So although it has been included in the manual, there isn't actually consensus that it should be. Okay, so what we're saying is that the World Health Organization says gaming mm. is an addiction. They would say so, but they would also admit that they came under particular pressure from countries in Asia to include it in, in that. And they have admitted themselves that the evidence base is poor. What they're hoping for is that that evidence base will come from its inclusion. But from my point of view, I think that's kind of bad science, bad evidence to include something when they're they're clear themselves that there isn't a substantial evidence base for its inclusion just yet. Okay. Can I ask the same question to you, Colin O'Gara, the head of addiction services at St. John and Galt's Hospital? What's your view? Is it an addiction? I think it is for some people. Um, we're starting to see the first wave now of people being referred to us for treatment solely of, of, of gaming addiction. So I think for some people it is. But again, we need to put it in context. In Ireland, we're probably, we don't know yet because we haven't got the figures, but in other countries, Mark referred there to Asia, probably up to about 10% of people there are reported to be addicted to gaming over there. So it's probably linked in with the availability of um, the, the gaming behaviour and the sophistication of broadband and the technology involved. So for many years in Asian countries, they were exposed to to these technologies and therefore we see a higher prevalence. In Ireland, we're catching up now and I think we're starting to see, as I say, we're on the cold face. We're starting to see people coming in for solely a referral for gaming uh, disorder. In the past, it used to be, you know, for something else, to be a cannabis addiction or a referral for assessment for you know autistic spectrum mm. disorder but now GPs are starting for the first time to say will you see this person for overuse of, of technology in some cases it might be social media channels this person is using Instagram too much they're using Netflix too much yeah this is the first time we're seeing this now 
but particularly now with games like Fortnite or League of Legends, we're starting to get young people in their early 20s being referred to our mm. service um, for that particular problem. Now, it, you know, I would state that it is, it is certainly very small compared to the big one, alcohol or drug addiction, so it must be put into perspective. But if I'm asked the question, you know, do I feel that it's an addiction? Well, I think it is for some, but Andre, I can't answer what the prevalence is just at this mm, moment okay. in time. I can't put it in a context just at this time. Yeah, but the funny thing is, though, I said at the outset, you know, we hear about this in in, a, in an anecdotal way. But if people are presenting to the likes and being referred to to yourselves at St. John of God Hospital, this is more now than anecdotal. This is yeah. I mean, I, 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 I absolutely can confirm that. If we go back ten years ago, you know, when I was doing the exact same job, it was alcohol, it was drug addiction, and it was. Gambling was starting to yeah. we were starting to get gambling referrals, and a lot of the talk at the moment, I I just feel is, you know, it's like deja vu with the gambling. Um, you know, the 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 discussions we had many years ago, the industry, you know, gambling industry were very, you know, very keen to put out the message that it affected very few I- individuals, that gambling was a very enjoyable behaviour for for everybody, and we're hearing the exact same dialogue. With regards to gaming, now there is no there is no question that there is a there is a significant literature saying that there are positive aspects of gaming. No doubt, socialization, uh, you know, as 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 a as a means of relaxation, etc. Mm. I am not. I have I have no problem with that. And the vast majority, well, careful with the vast, but the majority of people doing this will not have a problem. Okay, maybe if you ask me the percentage, maybe 80% at the moment. Now, some people would be jumping up and down mm. at that saying, hang on a second, 20% of people gaming don't have a problem. But if, we're, you know, we, we had the exact same uh, percentages with gambling and now slowly but surely people are starting to acknowledge that we have a significant problem with gambling. But all the while there's going to be this tension between the industry and coalface clinicians like myself arguing, arguing out those percentages. Can I bring you back in, Mark Smith, just because mm. you talked about, I suppose, some of the opposition to the the evidence of the inclusion of gaming addiction in, in the World Health Organization. What what was the dispute? What, what was the reason that it was felt that there wasn't enough evidence to, to, to support its inclusion? I, I suppose that the research is still catching up, that, that it isn't there to say, look, we have enough of this. Like you said, we've got, we can't base kind of public policy and our, 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 the way we interact with people and we support people based on anecdotal evidence. It's just not good enough in terms of providing that base. But just to come back on, on a point just mm. with Colin around kind of the prevalence of, of kind of people playing gaming. We know conservatives with 3.8 billion people last year were, were involved in gaming. Actually in Ireland, outside of Japan, we're the second highest per capita ownership of Playstations in the world. Right. And that has been since the PS4, PS, the original Playstation. So these games have been around for quite a while. I think what's interesting from my perspective is that these kind of questions around diagnosis have only come since the, the, the publication of, of these kind of criteria. People started to, to wonder about these things. Now, I'm not an apologist for gaming. I'm a reformed gamer. I used to play games before I had kids and okay. now I just don't have time anymore. Um, but there is problematic gaming. There is no doubt whatsoever that, that some people play gaming to problematic levels in terms of the amount of time that they do it, how long they do it for and the impact on their daily life. If we'll come to some of those issues in, in a mm. few moments' time because that was kind of partly the reason we're doing this this particular programme today um, because of queries we've had from members of the public about this, the impact that it's having on their own loved ones' uh, lives, their, their engagement mm. with society on a daily basis. But just in your opinion, Mark, if it's not an addiction, what is it then? Is it... 
hobby something people for, for, are... for some it's hobby and for the vast majority of it is it's an enjoyable way to pass some time to distract yourself to get a sense of achievement to feel like you're you're, you're doing something where you're, you're moving up levels you're enjoying it and that is we would agree on that for the vast majority mm. of people that's exactly what it is okay and, and but, just yeah, but, for, but for others and I certainly for while well, I work with kind of young people with mental health difficulties some with, some with adults I don't get people referred to me because of gaming addiction concerns. I do get people referred to me because of so, they're socially anxious. They've withdrawn from the world. They're staying in their bedrooms. They're not interacting with people. They don't get a sense of enjoyment from life anymore. And my kind of view on, on kind of problem gaming is that it becomes an unhealthy coping mechanism in itself so that they re- over rely on gaming as a way of seeking enjoyment, of avoiding the world, interacting with others through a safe place. So that if you're really, really socially anxious and the thought of having a face-to-face conversation mm. completely overwhelms you, if that medium by which you interact with others is a game through online gaming, it feels that little bit safer. You don't need to worry about eye contact, about tone of voice, about body language. Those things aren't an issue. So if you develop kind of a, I suppose, a, an, a confidence that you can do it online and you become dependent on that as your medium that's an unhealthy coping mechanism in my view rather than a unique disorder in itself. Okay, can I bring you back in perhaps uh, Colin O'Gara just on some of those points there that that Mark raised and also what I thought was interesting is that it's not just, I know we're talking about gaming today but as you mentioned it's not just gaming, this is social media and this is television streaming sites as you mentioned as well, like Mm. I would say that I'm addicted to my phone but I'm not actually addicted to it but it's never you know within arm's length from me like but I mean how do you differentiate the but the actual was clinical definition of an addiction. When does it become an addiction, and when is it just yeah. something that? Yeah, I mean, with the with the drug and alcohol addictions, it's pretty clear. Somebody takes too much of the substance, they fall down, and they do it in a repetitive, stereotype fashion, to the extent that it causes significant harm to them. With process addictions, it's a little bit different. With overuse, a lot of us overuse use phones, for instance, but it's not causing us the harm to the extent that it would in say other addictions. But again, it's the the categorization there is very important. There are, you know, certainly are difficulties now with people using the internet too much. That that could be called internet use disorder. But again, because of the lack of research in the area or the consensus of research on it, it will not get into the classificatory systems yet. I mean, as a psychiatrist, I have no difficulty with, you know, uh, discussing or describing the limitations of classificatory systems. You know, the, 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 the often the complexity of, of, of mental health and behavioural disorder, it doesn't fit neatly into the classificatory mm. systems that we have. And I think we need to be to be mindful of that. But certainly the, the, the research that Mark has, has alluded to, you know, the genetic research, some people are going to be genetically predisposed to develop gaming problems, just like a gambling problem, a drug problem or an alcohol problem. Similarly, if you do functional MRI studies of cases versus controls, you're going to see very, very clear differences in people who've got problem gaming versus people who don't. Those kind of difficulties you're going to see in areas of the brain associated risk processing like you do with gambling. I should stop gaming after three hours, six hours, nine hours, but those inhibitions are not there in people who suffer, who will suffer from this, this what will probably be extreme you know, form of, you know, in some cases people are, are, are gaming for 80 hours a week. Now, there's an argument out there for some people, and this is at the end of, of defining what an addiction is, that that overuse for some people is not problematic. Some people will say, you know, 70 hours a week of gaming, it adds to my life, it doesn't take for my life in any way. But therein lies the controversy at the moment. And I think what we need is more definitive research in the areas of genetics, FM- fMRI scanning, and psychological studies where you bind it all together and then 
there is there is there there is no debate as to the le- legitimacy of the condition, and that's exactly what happened in gambling disorder because for ages gambling disorder was in an impulse it was in a different section mm. from addiction and it was the consensus of all of that research that put it in to the addictive uh, section of DSM and now ICD have gone gone ahead and Mark is absolutely correct there was a lot of controversy that there isn't enough uh, literature and it was probably as a result of pressure coming from Asian countries um, my sense is we're going to get there because my sense is there's a commonality to all of these addictions that certain areas of the brain are hijacked, areas of the brain associated with decision-making, risk processing, okay. and they're faulty versus controls. You see, I think in layman's terms, people think of the likes of gambling and alcohol addiction. It, it's when somebody is dependent on the, the drink or, uh, you know, participating in betting or whatever online sites. And it's when they can't go to work every day without taking a drink or accessing and when it impacts on their lives. And I suppose these are the kind of tips we hear about in terms of alcohol and gaming addiction. Would that not in layman's terms mean, I suppose, Colin, that you are addicted to gaming if it's a thing that you can't go through a 24-hour period without X amount of hours spent on this, on on gaming or participating in games, your work is affected, your social life is affected? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the, the, the first... Uh, you know, if you look at any of the commentators on, on this issue of whether it's a, an addiction or not, one of the first core features of addiction is a thing called salience or primacy. So that is decline of other activities in favour of this new activity. So somebody coming to me for assessment of gaming disorder, I would look at it and say, okay, what's happened to this person's life over the, the period that they say that the gaming has become problematic? And what you'll see is decline of all other activities. I used to play golf. I used to play tennis. I used to go to the Mm. theatre. I used to go to the cinema. I used to meet people. I used to go to the pub. And what you see common in all addictions is you see a decline of those those, uh, behaviours and those pastimes over time in favour of this one thing. And, you know, to me, Andre, when you sit with somebody with, 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 you know, a clear gaming disorder, it, it, it's pretty obvious to you. You get what's called a collateral history as well from the people around them. Mm. And you see the other thing, one other core feature of addiction, which is conflict, okay? And one of our research collaborators, Mark Griffiths, who's a world leader in, in, in this work, Mark talks about, you know, some of the key features, one being conflict. If there's a lot of conflict, say, in the adolescence life with parents or if... If it's a young adult and they have a girlfriend or a boyfriend and they're saying, listen, you know, it's causing difficulties in relationships, you're starting to get into the world of certainly harmful use. So that could be harmful use of cocaine, it could be harmful use of alcohol, but it similarly can be harmful use of, 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 the, uh, of the gaming. Okay, so we're, not, so we're not necessarily just looking for, you know, my daughter plays, my you know, 28-year-old daughter plays four or five or six hours of such and such a game every day. This is, it could be less in terms of the duration that they're engaging with it, but it's if the conflict element comes into it. Well, therein lies the spectrum, right? So before the classification in addiction used to be you're an alcoholic or you're not an alcoholic. Okay, you're a drug addict or you're not a drug addict. This Similarly with, with process addictions now, the classification, particularly in the United States, has moved towards a spectrum. Say for, so, so for alcohol, it's alcohol use disorder versus, you know, dependent and not dependent. And if you, you know, drink too much, you know, if you look at your units, for mm. instance, over the week, 
or if it's causing harm to you in various aspects of your life, that puts you on what's, you know, it would be alcohol use disorder in that case. It's the same with internet gaming disorder. It is on a spectrum and it is mild, moderate, severe. So you can categorize the difficulty. And that helps a lot because particularly in treatment centers, when people are asking the question, am I an addict or am I not? You say, well, let's move away from that a little bit. Let's look at your relationship with this issue. In this case, it would be gaming. And they may have the salience that we've talked about or the primacy, so the mm-hmm. decline of other activities, and they may have conflict, which puts them into mild or moderate. But they may not be gaming for 100 hours a week where, you know, like we've seen in some okay. Asian countries, like in Japan, where people go into their rooms and don't come out literally for months. Well, that, that was one of the points, actually, just to ask you, um, Mark Smith, um, just in terms of that kind of idea, the classification, because I, I spoke to, to one uh, man quite recently, actually, about this, and he was talking about his child who is in their 20s, you know, and, and plays five hours a day. It's every day after work. It's on all of their days off. Um, it's every bank holiday. It's every weekend. It's every evening. And it's it's constant. Mm. And it just, what what's your view on that idea of the the classification, I suppose, of that? Um, I, I suppose the, 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 the manual in the States, the, the equivalent in America, have put internet gaming or gaming disorder in, their, in the back pages and the appendices of something that is not, you know, there's not enough evidence yet to include it. But whether it be that gaming or using the internet or using your phone or, or any other kind of behaviour that we engage in, we have to ask ourselves about when do we reach a stage where we're potentially pathologizing normal. So the, the author, the main author of the, the fourth manual in, in the States kind of is really concerned about this, that some of these diagnoses and pathology is overreaching into everyday life. So that high base rate behavior, such as gaming or, like say for example, do, do you watch Netflix? I do. Would you ever get to an end of an episode and go, do you know what, I know it's a cliffhanger, but I'll leave it until the next day and I won't watch the next two or three episodes in a row. If I'm really interested, I could sit and watch two and three. <laughs> exactly. I'm as, to put myself into a box As, as we're as all well. potentially a victim too. So <laughs> if you stay up till one or two o'clock yeah, in the morning, yeah. I know even early start in the morning, <laughs> so that's impacting on your, your day the next day because you're maybe a little bit tired, right. a little more irritable. And if, if you kind of move from that box set to another box set, another box set, do we then create a Netflix disorder? So where, where does it stop? Where does it end? So I think. So are you saying that we're looking to have a title on it? I think sometimes we, we need to create titles and we have to ask sometimes, what are they for? I know in the US that you cannot seek mental health treatment unless you have a formalised diagnosis because your, your insurance provider will not refund you unless you have a designated disorder. So over here, I think we've got a bit more of a nuanced place with it that we look at formulation, we look at context, we look at collateral mm. history, we look at all of those. But our, our health systems are influenced by what happens in the States and the DSM annual is very much linked to okay. diagnosis. Well, it's interesting the idea that you talk about kind of watching, you know, box sets and continuous. Mm. And look, a lot of people are guilty of it. We, we all do it from time to time. I suppose the difference, and it goes back to something you mentioned actually, Mark, a little bit earlier, this idea of a coping mechanism. I can still come to work and, and, and hold a conversation, you know, and have conversation with you now and have, and have eye contact while doing that. And that's where I would have understood there to be a difference in terms of people who this is where it really impacts them they, they, they don't have friends they're not engaging with social yeah. their social life anymore they're, they, they don't want to talk to their families there's rows in the house because of their involvement with gaming and they don't want and, and overuse of whatever it is yeah, okay. you know. overdependency is as a coping mechanism so with any emotional or mental health difficulty we might have we need a variety of tools available to us to be able to, to de-stress to manage our anxiety to manage our low mood so if we're struggling with our mood and the only thing that gives us enjoyment, the only thing that we really want to get into and look forward to is to play a game, then that's a problem. 
because we, there's a variety of other things that work really, really well, like exercising, like mixing mm. with people. Those things will help us too. But if a person, and we agree on this, if they exclude all those other things that we know work too and only rely on gaming, then we've got a problem. Or, you know, you, you mentioned earlier on about if someone plays for five, six hours a day. If they are during work hours where the person should be engaged in education or should be going to work, then that is a problem in itself. So I have met some young people who specifically will stay up all night to play games and then miss school and sleep all day. Their reason is, is that, or their their justification is that interview the best gamers are in the States and they're all playing during the night. So they create lots of mm. unique justifications as to why they should be able to do it. So for that, it is a direct impairment on their ability to engage in education and interact with their peers every day. And yes, you have to intervene. But back to your question about that 20 year old who has you know developed a difficulty with that. My issue with that particular case scenario is if we wait until 20, then we've got a serious problem. The, in my experience, the, the, the likelihood of someone at 20 or 25 starting to play a PlayStation or Xbox and becoming you know, addicted to it, if you want to use that terminology, mm. is quite unlikely. So that you were saying the red flags were, were, were back start, years ago? Start much, much earlier. So I, I primarily work with young people and we see that this over-reliance on gaming starts much, much younger and that unfortunately the, the boundaries, the supports are sometimes just not put in place to enable that young person to self-regulate. Because essentially, if you're playing gaming for five, six, seven hours a night or a day or whatever it's going to be, that's a difficulty in self-regulation. You're not knowing that this is too much. I need to stop. Mm. What about the cases, though, where parents are getting involved and they're going in and they're knocking on the door at one and two in the morning and they're saying, you know, Andrea, too much. You're on this for the last six, seven hours. You need to clock off. You can go back and play for an hour or two tomorrow. But parents are there. They're aware of this. They're involved in it. Maybe it wasn't deemed to be an issue 10 years ago. And that's the issue in itself is that parents will come in and try to put in these boundaries after it becomes a problem. If you give a young person access to any piece of technology, be that a phone or a PlayStation or anything that involves in gaming, you give it with terms and conditions attached. Here's what you're getting it for. Here's how long you're getting it for. And if you don't give it back after that time, here's what the consequence will be. Unfortunately, we tend to see parents and young people coming in after it's become a problem. And I absolutely agree Mm. when there's conflict. So you try to get the young person off. They get a big row, there's lots of emotions coming out, lots of behaviours, mm-hmm. and that becomes a difficulty in itself. But from my point of view, it's mostly because there was no expectation of when that time should end in the first place. Okay, we're going to have to take a very short break here, but coming up in a few moments' time, we're going to be asking uh, what tips and advice you have for people who feel they do have a problem with overuse of gaming and indeed for family members who feel that they should or want to get involved in, in terms of intervention. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on Newstalk. You're welcome back to the second part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today we're discussing gaming in Ireland. We're asking whether gaming's an actual addiction or just a passionate hobby. And we're going to be looking at the mom- in the next few minutes at some tips and advice for people who are concerned. Our panel still with us today, Professor Colin O'Gara, who's the Head of Addiction Services at St. John of God Hospital, and also clinical psychologist Mark Smith, who's the President-elect of the Psychological Society of Ireland. My thanks to you both for staying with us today. Um, one area that, that was raised with me or flagged with me a while back about this idea of a, a gaming addiction um, was the fact that it's very difficult for people to get help for this in Ireland that unless they're referred to or willing to I suppose engage with services what can you do Colin O'Gara? Well first I think the first point is is uh, consistent with what we're discussing today is acknowledgement that there's a difficulty and it's pieces like this help with it with with um the understanding for families that there actually is an issue 
Um, I think classificatory systems really help because it helps people who are suffering from a particular uh, issue within a family to know that there is a name that you can put on it and that there's help out there for it. Now, where is the help is the question. I think the first port of call would be with general practitioners. And as I said earlier, that's where we're getting a lot of our referrals from at the moment. Um, So I think a discussion with the family doctor in the first instance would be the place to go. I think community addiction teams as well are starting to, uh, you know, treat internet gaming disorder, at least be aware of it at the moment. So... In our own locality, we have Bray Community Addiction uh, Service, Sandyford Addiction uh, Community Addiction Team as well. They're very, very helpful, well set up uh, community addiction teams. Um, beyond that, within the public service, I think Mark would probably be a better. Um, but what you're saying is really, am I right in saying that the first protocol is really the local doctor that's where the referral comes to the likes yeah. of yourselves or the Rutland Centre or yeah absolutely I mean okay. you, you, yeah I mean you have to you know you can obviously go online and look look at what's available but you won't find very much online about mm. internet gaming disorder okay. that's the thing to stress here because uh, you know you're going from dro- alcohol to drugs to gambling and then finally into you're getting into small print but the message very clearly that I would be putting out uh, is Andrea would be that you know this is something that we see it's something we deal with and there are treatments, you know, again, the research okay. backing what treatment available isn't very, you know, it isn't fantastic. But again, from what I'm seeing, you know, the, the difficulties that people are suffering here are very similar to other addictions. So there's no reason why people would not be treated in a similar okay. way. But can I can I ask you, though, what about in the case of, you know, somebody who's in their late 20s, their early 30s, who's, an, you know, an adult like myself, doesn't recognise that they this is a problem. You know, they're, they're, just, they're just participating in a hobby, something they enjoy. It's not an issue. But meanwhile, their family members yeah. are sitting in the sidelines going, hang on a second, Andrea, this is a problem for you in work now. You're not yeah. engaging with friends. Uh, we've raised this issue with you. You don't want to talk about it. You're not engaging with us on it. How do we get somebody like that to engage with you? Well, it's a, it's a conversation I have regularly because I have that conversation with families and I have individuals who sit opposite me and say, you know, what, what you know, when, fam- when well, exactly. And when the family go outside the room, they say, listen, they're all, you know, I don't know what they're talking about. I'm grand. Now, you know, normally a person has an awareness, though, that their family are distressed and there's that conflict that we talked about earlier mm. and they want to do something about it on some level. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time for to nudge that process along. But clearly you need engagement from the individual on some level. So the first, you know, it's easier to get to a general practitioner than it, than it is to get to a specialist service. The step after the contact with the general practitioner would be with ourselves. So, but what we see is people are quite reluctant to attend treatment. Yeah. They're quite insightless, um, consistent with all addictions. But that's the, that's why there are treatment services there. That's why there are people like me uh, involved in this, so that we can nudge people along with regards to their awareness and their insight into the problem. But do you have to have a GP referral to go to the likes of yourselves at, at St. John and God Hospital? Yeah, absolutely. So you we're G- okay. GP referral only. And I, again, I I would have thought that a lot of specialist centres at this stage would be looking for some form of a general practitioner's referral. Yeah. Okay. Can I bring you in? Obviously, Colin O'Gara, you're coming from this um, from a psychiatry perspective. Yeah. And Mark Smith, you're a, you're a clinical psychologist. So mm. what would your advice be for people? How do you get people to engage? I think it depends on the age that they're coming in as first. I suppose for, for an adult, one of the things that we need to do is, and there is a risk with kind of some of these kind of psychiatric diagnoses or labels in terms of it can have the opposite effect of what you intend. So sometimes mm-hmm. a diagnosis like you've got a, a gaming disorder, 
some and I have spoke to people who've interpreted that as well there's nothing I can do about it it's I've, I've got a disorder so in some ways it, some is demotivate people one so do you change the language? I don't change the language. One of the things that we need to move on to is another part of kind of classification systems, which is looking at the degree of impairment. So if a person says, it's fine, it's grand, it doesn't impact on me. Well, okay, well, you're not working. You haven't left your bedroom for, for the last week. You're not eating. You're not showering. So we need to show what the detrimental impact of whatever the type of behaviour is directly on the person to evidence that, okay, there is this label, but on a day-to-day basis, what's different from how a typical person might interact with the world and the developmental tasks that you might expect of them versus where you're at. So it's quite hard for them to argue against that mm. when you can show here is the harm or the potential harm. Or if you continue along this path, how do you see your life turning out? Where, where do you see the changes happening? Will it change at all if you just stay in your bedroom for the next 10, 20, 30 years? What will your life be like? So we need to open up and expand their, their, their range of the way they see the world, the way they see themselves and what it might be like if they continue along that path. So that would be the route I would take with an adult. So open a conversation with the adults. Yeah, and and look at the the tangible pieces about what differences it is making to their lives, the fact that they're staying awake all night and sleeping all day Mm. and not going to work. I just wonder, when you mention that, the idea of staying awake all night, is insomnia and even, for instance, obesity, are are they linked in terms of of gaming or is there a... A crossover. There's certainly a high risk. Yes, if you're staying up late and you're finding it difficult to go to bed because I just want to play one more game and if you're doing any sedentary lifestyle mm-hmm. where you're sitting down in front of a desk or whatever it's going to be all the time. But you also can't take a break from the game to make something to eat. So it's yeah. takeaway and, and, and convenience food and snack food and there's a lot of that probably involved in of some of the cases I know of anecdotally that's one of the things that would often be cited to you. It is, and sometimes, you know, we put that that difficulty inherent into the to, uh, the person who sits there and plays the game. We also sometimes look at the family systems around us, and sometimes those family systems actually support and maintain that difficulty. So I've met young people where the, the young person stays in the room playing the games, or mom or dad will bring them up their dinner, put it in front of them, and then take it away when they're finished so that they're actually facilitating that. So that's why, with particular, with this kind of difficulty, we need to look at the systems around them. We need to look at at the, the girlfriends or the, the, the husbands or the parents and how are they interacting with it? Because if we just look at the person on their own, sometimes they might not have that inherent motivation to want to change. So we need to create the support structures around them to help them to do it. If insomnia and perhaps obesity or either or or both are part and parcel of this whole conversation as well, is that one way, I don't want to use the word trick, but is that one way to try and perhaps get somebody to open a conversation about this? You're not sleeping, it's impacting on your work mark maybe we should have a chat about this, we should go and talk to somebody about it. All mm. of a sudden you're sitting in front of yourself or Colin and it's now we're getting into the root of the problem, which is the fact you're actually gaming for hours. See, the hard part about having that conversation is how you approach it in terms of the tone. So that if you've had a previous conflictual relationship about it and somebody comes okay. in to try and talk to you about it, mm. they know what you're the guard asking. is going to be up. The expectation is you're judging me and you think there's something wrong with me and you don't like me and it becomes about that and the relationship rather than the concern that's there. So you have to kind of approach these conversations in kind of a curious kind of thing or concerning without conveying judgment. If you convey judgment, a person's guard is going to go up and they just they're going to shut off the conversation. So coming in with kind of the heavy handed, you need to stop, you're going to be obese and you're never going to sleep again. And it's going to impact on this. Those scare tactics generally don't work. OK, can I bring you back in, Colin O'Gara? You're in, you're nodding in agreement <laughs> to, to yeah, what yeah, Mark's it's, saying. It's, it's really sensible advice. I think it, it comes back to, uh, you know, decades ago, a lot of addiction treatment service used to be confrontational. Um, you know, in some form, in, in latter years, it became subtly confrontational. And then I think more recently, it's be- 
become overtly compassionate and supportive, really to nudge people along, as I was saying earlier, to get them to, to where you want them to go. Uh, it really is about support and compassion and help. You know, there's no evidence that confrontation or getting aggressive or, you know, trying to push people mm. works. Now, of course, when you've got highly distressed families with somebody, you know, that is is gaming 70 hours a week with all the problems that go with it, it's a difficult task. But the first step is really trying to get everybody into a room. And generally with gaming disorders, opposed to other addictions, I tend to see that the person with the problem comes they, they come at least for a first assessment and the, the the kind of dialogue that mark is alluding to there is absolutely critical you know the first step would be just engagement we would be looking for the person to see that the you know person sitting in my chair is knows primarily knows a little bit about gaming knows what they're talking about but is there to help them and they could ring them afterwards maybe for a mm. telephone conversation or the next time they go there it's not going to be too bad and really, that's the ground zero that you have to start from. You know, when if somebody is not motivated, it's a slow process and it takes time. Even if the person themselves, the gamer um, or the person that's overusing, whatever way we're going to classify them, even, even if they're in denial about this, completely in denial. Well, they're absolutely in denial. I mean, the denial can be, can be you know, rock solid denial. And you have to, as I say, you know, usually, you know, they're, they're young individuals that realise that their family are, are distressed and they'll tell you, look, they're distressed, but there's no problem here. And what you've got to do in the first instance is try and build rapport with the young person so that you can then make change down the line. You say, look, you know, I appreciate that you feel you don't have a problem, but, we're, you know, maybe we could work together over a shorter, a short period of time where we'd look at you know, your family's views, look at your views and you take part in that at the very least, mm. you know, rather than coming straight in and saying, look, you've, an appointment. you've got this thing that the Americans uh, haven't yet agreed on, but it's, we think it's called Internet Gaming Disorder and you've got it and you've got to do X, Y and Z. No, that, that, that won't work. Just from the, the for, as a clinical psychologist, Mark, um, Colin said that obviously to, to go to the likes themselves at the St. John of God Hospital, you, you'll need the GP referral. Is that the case even from a psychological perspective as opposed to psychiatry? Is it the it, same access? It depends on which part of the mental health system you're working in. So in the CAM service that I work in, yes, GP referral would be one of the routes in. There, there are other ways that you can refer into CAMS. GP would probably be the most common. That's just the CAMS is the... Child and Lesson Mental yeah. Health Services. Um, for a psychologist, be it clinical or counselling or a psychologist working in private practice, predominantly no they wouldn't require a GP's referral but there is no harm that if it's got to kind of quite concerning levels for a GP to be at least be aware of these concerns too is always helpful but there are a variety of different supports available so in the case where someone gets where you're kind of 60 70 hours a week that's quite concerning what I would encourage kind of is, is parents and family members to be more involved in an earlier stage so that if you're starting to become concerned where you're noticing actually it's increasing a little mm. bit by little bit it to start the conversation then because if the, if the coping mechanism has become quite embedded and the person really wants to cling on to it, then it's quite hard to shift. But if you open up that conversation, you're like, do you know what? I'm noticing you're playing a lot more gaming and you know maybe we could go for a walk, maybe we could go play a game of football, maybe we could go for dinner, that you're trying to intervene and provide other coping mechanisms early to counteract that, that over-dependency that might develop. So start the conversations early. Okay. The other thing I would just say is that the instinct, certainly among many parents, is that when they believe it becomes problematic... They tend to use kind of the ripping off the, the, the plaster approach, which is take away the console. Um, so if in the case of the situation I was talking about, if it's a coping mechanism and you withdraw completely in one go, you're going to get a massive reaction. You could get a lot of regression. So it needs to be taken in a very slow, compassionate way. 
Um, but parents do need to step in early on, have the conversations, put the boundaries in, and it's less likely to develop into those kind of really problematic spaces. Yeah, I, I know I know for a lot of people that I've been speaking to about this in terms of research for, for today's programme, they, they always say like, you know, go, going to the GP is a problem. We're not going to get him or her to the GP to to acknowledge there's an issue and then go to the likes of services. But what you're saying, um, Mark, today is that, you know, you can go to, you can access um, clinical psychology services, that mm. that would be one route if the GP is going to be an issue for people to try to, to get them there in the first instance. It is. And, and for, for some parents, I can think of some young people I say that I've worked with but never actually have seen where the, the young person has refused to come to see me because they don't see it as a problem they don't want to leave their bedroom you know I could come to the house but they don't want to talk to me so I had many cases where I just saw the parents on them by, the, by themselves and I worked with the parents so how, and how, what would your advice be in that case for people that are is that, that, if, that are in if you can't is? get the, if, if it's a younger person and you cannot get them to come to see you that the parents themselves can come for advice and support about how they react how they manage it the, the, how they show compassion, how they put boundaries in place. So it's, it's trying to kind of use understanding, but also put in boundaries at the same time. What parents tend to try and do is they go for just the consequences. They take it away and they miss out on the piece where they're showing compassion and understanding. So parents and, and parenting is hard, especially around technologies that they're not familiar with. They do need support, guidance and understanding too. Parents will often fear that if I come and tell you that my son has been playing for 10 or 12 hours a night, that the, the professional is going to judge them as parents. Mm. But what we need to do is that actually, no, we know it's hard and we will give you the same understanding that we would to your son or yeah. daughter if they have difficulties too. And that we need to support and empower parents to intervene early. Okay, so it's interesting because I, I didn't realise that, that, that as a parent, you can actually go and get get assistance or get some support or advice and, and try and then incorporate that. If it's a case that, that your, your, your own sibling or your child or your friend is just utterly not willing to engage and completely in denial. Absolutely, those supports are available. Okay. Um, in terms of kind of just general campaigns, we've had so many campaigns about um, government campaigns, public policy campaigns about the effect of smoking of alcohol you know me- advice for anyone that's um, having has difficulties with, with mental health difficulties as well there's so many public campaigns being run in these particular areas but we've never really seen one in terms of the kind of gaming does that come back um, Colin O'Gara to the idea again of classification is that yeah, I think classification, because of the controversy and the lack of clarity, that's certainly contributed. Um, I think it's emerging is, is, is the other issue. And there's probably so many other priorities, even within the addiction space. So you see gambling being pushed down. Uh, you know, you hear a lot about the public alcohol health bill. Um, you hear a lot about uh, addiction, or heroin addiction, opioid addiction, quite rightly. Um, so even gambling is a small space in there. But again, it's, the, the lobby is going to be hugely important as well. Um, in the case of um, gaming, I you know, again, there was a recent House of Commons, um, not inquiry, but they, mm. there, was, there was an interface where they brought uh, young gamers in, some who were addicted. And I saw the industry's response to that was very much, uh, well, my, my interpretation of it was not a problem here, move along. Um, even though there was actual young people saying, "Look, we're, you know, we're game. You know, we, we are clearly addicted to this, to this issue." So I think we're going to see um, a strong lobby here as well. There's billions of euro being spent on the development of games. It is a h- huge, huge industry. Um, you know, I, I, you know, taking responsibility for that will probably mirror the gambling situation, where there'll be a reluctance initially to take responsibility for the fact that the product is actually addictive. And this happened in gambling where 
for a long, long time, it was, oh, those poor, unfortunate, the tiny little minority of people who gamble, uh, you know, that, that go on to get addiction. And it, the, the issue lies with them, not the product. Gambling is inherently addictive by the nature of the product. Some people are exposed to gambling and because of their genetic makeup and the way they are, they become addicted, right? This is the same with the product here for internet gaming. The the actual games themselves are developed in such a way to be very attractive, but for some, they're addictive. Now, this is what we need to get our heads around. It is the product that is addictive. Yes, the, the people is have... Is it not the personality that I would have thought that was engaging with the product? Well, not necessarily. I mean, there are genes that encode for the expression of personality. So some people, people don't, they don't decide what genetics they have. They're born with particular genetics, which with the expression of which personality comes through. It is the product, in this case, games, which are becoming more and more sophisticated, more and more attractive, and for some more addictive. And I think that's where there's going to be an issue around ownership of that. The gambling industry is the same. The gambling industry have to own the fact that their product is addictive for some and therefore campaigns around that, the funding of campaigns, the funding of treatment services should come from the industry. And similarly with internet gaming disorder, the funding should for this, for this disorder, which I think will be acknowledged not only in Europe but also in the States, the funding should come from within the industry as well. But we've got a long way to go before the industry actually takes responsibility for that. Just a final point, Mark, to you for the moment. Do you, believe, do you agree with Colin on those points he's made and just whether or not there is a need for greater awareness in government and perhaps the HSE and in terms of public policy campaigns? I think there's definitely a need for greater awareness. Um, I wouldn't be supportive of an awareness campaign focusing on gaming specifically. I think, and I've spoken about this before, I think it needs to be an awareness around how we engage with healthily with digital technologies. Because if we're not, this week here we're talking about gaming, next week it'll be about phones, the week after it'll be about the internet. And we see them as all kind of distinct entities. But technology is, you know, the horse is bolted, it's there, it's it's everywhere, we're all using it. So I think we do need health campaigns about how we engage with those in a, in a balanced way. So I definitely would agree on that. Would I agree on specifically gaming? No, I wouldn't. I would also kind of disagree, I suppose, around the piece around that the games themselves are inherently addictive. Because we don't design games that are not fun. So if they didn't have, you know, moving up to the next level, if they didn't have challenges, they're, the competitive desi- side. they're designed that way. Nobody would buy them if they weren't fun, if they weren't interactive, if they weren't engaging. But in the same way that they don't design um, Netflix shows so that where you have a cliffhanger, where you want to do more. So we design products that people want to consume. Now, I do agree that there are certain people who don't know when to stop consuming. Um, but in the, in the most part... That is a lot of it got to do with their psychological makeup and their their need for, for certain things rather than I wouldn't see the issue being in the product itself. Do I think digital technology, be that Facebook or or Sony or whoever it might be, should they put more supports into place in terms of digital campaigns? Absolutely. Really fascinating conversation today, folks. And my thanks to you both for joining us. And I hope for anybody listening today, it has offered some advice and tips for them and maybe perhaps a little bit of direction if this is an issue that they're trying to overcome at the moment. Um, just in terms of a contact number for people listening today or for your service, advice, um, an advice helpline for people. Is there any, even your own, Colin, the, the for the John of God services? There? Yeah, I mean, it's the inquiries would be 2771400. But because it's an emerging area, again, I think both Mark and myself have stressed that, you know, there there isn't a huge amount of, of support. And, you know, if you go online, you're not going to get a huge amount 
online. So I would start again, as I said earlier, with getting to your, to your GP and uh, you can always ring uh, the hospital as well. We'll leave it there for today. My thanks to you both for joining us. Professor Colin O'Gara, Head of Addiction Services at St. John of God Hospital and also Clinical Psychologist and President-Elect of the Psychological Society of Ireland, Mark Smith. Thanks to you both for joining us today. Between the Lines on Newstalk. You're welcome back to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today we've been discussing gaming in Ireland. We've been asking whether gaming is an actual addiction or just a passionate hobby. My thanks to both Professor Colin O'Gara and clinical psychologist Mark Smith, who joined us for the first part of the programme today. Also joining us now on the programme is Cleona Curley, who's the programme director of Cyber Safe Ireland. Cleona, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Andrea. We've been talking lots today, Cleona, about gaming in Ireland and whether or not it is an actual addiction. Just from your own perspective in in Cyber Safe Ireland, is this something that you've noticed a prevalence of? Um, well, certainly it, it would be. So CyberSafe Ireland is the Irish Children's Charity for Online Safety and we, we'd spend a lot of time in schools talking to kids, uh, usually aged between 8 and 13, and a lot of time talking to their parents and, and teachers as well. And it would be, I suppose, one of the uh, more popular topics that, that come up, um, particularly uh, for parents. And it would be something that we discuss with the, with the kids in depth as well. And um, there's no doubt there's lots of kids out there mm-hmm. who love gaming. Um, but uh, you know whether it's an addiction or not is, is is a different issue. Yeah, it's funny. I was looking at some research uh, just earlier from uh, from Zico, the Irish education tech company, and they were quoting one in third one third of eight year old boys are playing video games, for instance, over the age of eighteen. Yeah, well, we we, we would have uh, so we we released um, uh, you know figures. We release figures every year with our annual report, and we released other figures um, on eight to ten year olds uh, just last month. Um, and we would certainly find that uh, you know about a third of kids aged eight to thirteen are uh, or have played an over 18s game. Um, there is a bit of a gender divide. Uh, we find so we'd find that over half of the boys. Age age 13 would have played an over 18s game, but it's much lower for the girls. So it'd be about 13%. Any reason for that? Um, but there's a bit of a gender divide with the gaming anyway um, and the types of games sometimes that, that kids are playing um, and, you know, whether they're playing online. Um, so there, that divide exists anyway. Um, I, I don't know uh, from a psychology point of view whether mm. there is a, a gender divide okay. in terms of boys being more attractive to violent games, which is often why there is an over-18s classification. Yeah. C- c- um, I want to very specifically, I suppose, Cleona, today speak to you from the advisory perspective. And I suppose we've been looking at this issue in from two different um, two different particular uh, catchments in terms of young children and then adults as well. So we start with, with young kids. What's your advice for people? Like early intervention is what I've learned today is key in all of this for parents. You're absolutely right, Andrea. I mean, the, the earlier parents can start thinking about this kind of thing, the, the better. And, you know, we'd be advising, um, you know, that, that parents, even if parents of very young children, the reality is children are getting access to, to technology in a lot of cases, very young. So important that, that parents are thinking about it. Um, in terms of gaming, um, you know, I, 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 one very popular game over the last year has been Fortnite. I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of it. I've heard lots about it. Yes. <laughs> OK, well, you know, there's, there's very few parents out there who haven't heard about it because either their their kids are playing it or potentially they've been pestered uh, you know for for their kids to be playing it and it was um you know it's it's a funny game it's i suppose it's not had as many concerns in terms of of violence or content and um, though it is a first person shooter game it's quite cartoony um so it has a 12s rating um but it was a phenomenal success you know starting around kind of may or june last year and what loads of parents were were suddenly telling us was they were facing all these behavioural issues. 
So kids were, you know, uh, did not want to come off the game. They wanted to start another game. And these games, uh, Battle Royale, which is the version that, that the kids were playing, um, you know, was up to 100 players. You'd have a squad. Maybe your friends are on the squad with you. And the worst thing in the world that you could do to a child, you know, when Fortnite came out, if they were playing it, was call them to dinner in the middle of a Fortnite game. And um, that was an absolute disaster from a child's perspective. And then, of course, you know, kids were finding it very difficult to just, you know, stop at one mm. game. And apparently, um, you know, we have heard that, uh, you know, this this game, um, all games, I think, you know, are designed to be an ad- addictive, um, you know, in, in some ways, um, you know, they want to hold a, the, the user onto them, but that, uh, you know, psychologists had worked to make this, you know, particularly addictive. Um, so, you know, for us, in some ways, uh, we saw this as an opportunity because actually it was really interesting in our classroom conversations with the kids. It was the first time that kids were actually telling us that they were finding it difficult not to start another game. They were kind of recognising for the first time that actually this had an addictive element for them. Um, And because of that, that's an opportunity for parents to start teaching them to self-regulate. And that's where you need to get to. Okay, how do you do that? Um, Well, you know, easier said than done (laughs) uh, to a certain extent. It's not something that'll happen overnight. But we would suggest, so let's just take Fortnite as an example, if, if that was a game that, that uh, you, you know, you've agreed for your, your child to be playing and some parents would be okay with it and some parents wouldn't, depending on the age of the child. But if you've agreed for your, your child to be playing that game, um, you know, then you need to make very clear rules up front. So, you know, express your concerns to the child. You know, I'm not 100% happy with you playing this game because I've heard from lots of, of my friends who are parents that actually people are finding it very hard to, you know, that it is quite addictive. They're finding it hard to get to come off the game I don't want any behavioural issues I don't want this changing your behaviour mm. um, in oh, any way any, any of the games exactly, yeah. exactly so you know we need to set out the rules from it if I'm happy for you to play it then you get a certain amount of time and if you can't finish a game within that time you don't start another game and you need to show me that you can manage this. So, you know, you're you're having this very honest conversation okay, so up front. So upfront at the start. And when set I the say boundaries. when I say upfront, I mean like upfront when you agree to them playing the game, but also upfront before they play the game each time. So that, you know, you're reminding them then that look, this is what we've agreed. I've given you an hour or whatever it is. Um, and it might be some, you know, some parents will allow their kids to play for a certain amount of time during the week, every day. Others will will keep it for the weekend. But whatever okay. the agreement is, saying that up front, reminding them right before they play and then giving them a little bit of a warning as, you know, it's time for them to come off. And what you want to do is get them to the point that they might not come off so willingly the first time, but they'll come off willingly enough for you to agree that they can play the next okay. time. If people want to make contact with yourselves... CyberSafe Ireland. Yeah, so um, you know, unfortunately, we're we're not a, a response service. You no, know, our but your focus is very is... much on education. Um, but you know, we have a lot of information available. And do you know what we have? Um, we have a lot of good information for parents there who are trying to make healthy choices in terms of their kids' use of technology early on. If you have a look at our website, uh, CyberSafeIreland.org, and if you look at CyberSafeIreland.org/slash/healthy, that's where we have okay. a lot of good information on this kind of thing. My thanks to you for joining us today. That's uh, the program director of Cyber. Safe Ireland, Cleona Curley joining us here on Between the Lines today. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download our podcast on Newstalk.com or search for News Talks Between the Lines in iTunes or any other podcast player. My thanks to the production team, Elaine Power and Stephen Jordan. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. We will be back again next week here on News Talk on Saturday evening from 8. I'll also be back with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from 6. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day.